This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we're interviewing John Kim. John is a mortgage broker, and today he's going to talk about creative financing, and tips on how to increase income to buy more properties. We're also going to go over different types of loans and the pricing. I feel like this podcast is really great for first-time home buyers who don't quite understand how the loan structure works. John's a really good friend of mine, and he has a lot of knowledge in this field. That's welcome, John. Thanks for coming on the show with me today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, too. So yeah, go ahead and introduce yourself. Like, Who are you and what do you do? Uh, my name is John Kim with Modern Mortgage Experience. I'm a mortgage lender, uh, mortgage broker to be precise, and um, help clients um, purchase their residential home, um, non-commercial related, and the target areas for me are usually around LA County and Orange County right now. Very cool. Very cool. And how long have you been in the in the business? I started in September. September, August of 2016, to be precise. Nice. So it's been, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, maybe about two years or so. Cool. Um, maybe a little bit over. But, um, but I used to work at a larger retail mortgage company called Loan Depot. And then I moved over to the broker side. And it's since... April last year of 2018. Nice. So who are your typical clients and how are they finding you guys? Typical clients are, I guess for any kind of loan officer, the typical clients would be the realtors. And then obviously the actual clients taking out the loan would be the buyer for the house. Um, so I kind of see both as clients, but residual income would come more from realtors because they're the ones who refer me to to their buyers got it. buy a house. Got it. So like most people who are buying a home, they have no idea how the loan process even works. So they rely on their realtor. Hey, hook me up with someone that you know and Correct. let me know. Okay, cool. Got it. Exactly. And I guess those buyers, are they usually first-time home buyers or just whatever? A lot of first-time home buyers I've been dealing with recently, um, but not necessarily. Um, a lot of sellers. So a lot of people, a lot of agents who get listings to sell that house, usually have their seller buy a house afterwards, whether they're downsizing or upsizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way, that way they can give refer the seller to me as well. So it's not usually, everyone always thinks of it as one-sided um, where, oh, I don't get a lot of buyers, but if you get a lot of listings, those, those are buyers as well. That's right, that's right. Okay, mm-hmm. very interesting. And then what kind of loans are they taking out? A traditional like um, 20% down? It depends on each individual client or individual buyer. So most common loan taken out would be a conventional loan. A conventional loan would be a loan that has kind of the normal mortgage interest rates, uh, but interest rates are also affected by credit score. But my usual typical recommendation for a conventional loan would be at least over 700 to get at least decent pricing on the interest rate. Um, if you're under 700, then I actually most likely would get them to probably start off with an FHA loan. Um, an FHA loan is lower interest rate than a conventional, but they do have higher mortgage insurance monthly. And also they charge something called an upfront mortgage insurance premium, which is 1.75% of the loan amount, which is added on to the original loan amount at the beginning of the of the loan. Um, usually it makes more sense to do an FHA because um, usually it's a lower interest rate. It's easier to qualify for FHA because the minimum credit score for FHA is 580 for conventional 620. But if you have a lower credit score, it's a little cheaper to do FHA because um, you can actually get a higher loan amount because FHA has a debt to income ratio of 56.99% to be precise. Whoa, what the hell? Nice. But for a conventional, it goes up to 50% only. 
So sometimes, usually you can qualify for a higher loan amount on FHA rather than conventional. But, so can you clarify one more thing? You said yeah. 1.75% at the beginning of a loan. Was that FHA or is that conventional? FHA. Okay, FHA. so that's, I guess, one of the cons of doing FHA. You have an extra 1.75%. And On an upfront mortgage insurance premium. Is that the same as PMI or is that separate? It's separate. It's separate from PMI. It's just only for FHA loans Got it. that have an upfront mortgage insurance premium. And it's for all FHA loans, no matter how much down all payment FHA you loans. put? Correct. All FHA loans. Oh. They charge the upfront up mortgage insurance premium. But it's rolled into Usually, your overall loan, yeah. so it doesn't hurt that bad. Correct. It doesn't hurt that bad, but $400,000 loan amount, $1.75, you're adding like close to $9,000 to the loan amount. Sure. That would increase your payment probably like right around like 50 bucks. Yeah. That's so cool. I, I, but I got it. 50 bucks a month. Yeah, it's not too bad. Oh, but but do, yeah. you, do you still have to pay PMI if you have FHA loan? FHA loan, think about PMI for FHA. You have PMI for the life of the loan. What? So for con- for conventional, um, at 20% equity, they usually get rid of the PMI uh-huh. automatically off of your mortgage insurance if you, have, if you hold that loan for that long. Um, but for FHA, it's for the life of the loan. So most people usually take out an FHA loan first to get into the house and then down the road they refinance into conventional. Oh. And how much is PMI? PMI it depends on um more on the type of loan and also credit score as well. So these days I've been quoting on a conventional loan with ideal credit score over seven fifty or even eight hundred. You're looking at around like eighty bucks a month, which is really, really low. But for FA, but if you go lower in credit score, um, it can go all the way up to like three hundred, four hundred dollars, jeez, um, a month. Um, if you have like a pretty low credit score for like six fifty on a conventional, um, but even though conventional has higher mortgage insurance for an FHA loan, if you had a six fifty, it might actually be lower mortgage insurance for FHA. Um, just because the lowest credit score for FHA is 580, which is like a tier down from the lowest credit score for conventional, if that makes sense. Sure. Uh, so FHA has like a set uh, PMI number, whereas conventional it has tiered PMI numbers? It, no, both both is tiered Okay. based off of credit score. Sure. But since FHA, but if you were to compare, if FHA had 620, credit score as the lowest qualifying score for the loan, uh-huh. FHA would have higher mortgage insurance rate than conventional. But uh-huh. what I'm saying is since they have a lower 580 credit score amount, 650 is high for FHA, while a 650 is lower for conventional uh-huh. in terms of which tier you're in. Okay. So that's what I'm saying. Got it, got it, got it. But ideally, if you have a high credit score, you want to go conventional because mortgage insurance is cheaper at a higher score. And is the mortgage insurance based on how much you're borrowing as well? Or is it just kind of like a flat Correct. number? Um, the biggest determining factor for PMI is the credit score and also the equity you have in the, in the home when you buy the home. So the down payment amount. Mm-hmm. Um, but the biggest thing is credit score. Got That's it. the biggest determining factor. From a change from 10% down to 20% down, there's a very slight difference in the PMI, maybe talking like $5, $10. But from credit score to credit score, different tiers from 709 to 710 to 719 to 720 to 730, 720 to 729, those are where you see the biggest difference in mortgage insurance. Got it. And while we're talking about tiers, can you go over the tiers? Because I know like, I personally, when I'm getting loans, I'm like at that 740 range sometimes. And that's kind of like, oh, you're like oh. almost there, right? So yeah, go ahead and tell us what are the tiers. and if- So for the tiers, it just kind of goes by 10 points on your credit score. Um, the pricing on the, on the interest rate is tiered by that, like every 10 points on your credit score. Starting from 580 for FHA, 624 conventional. Um, the highest... The best interest rate that you can get for a conventional loan or an FHA loan, I guess you could say, is 740. Anything higher than a 740 for pricing. Okay. Um, so even if you had a 740 versus a 800, interest rate would pricing would be the same. Okay. But where it makes a difference is the mortgage insurance. 
a 740 credit score versus an 800 credit score on mortgage insurance is like, I'll, I'm just kind of guesstimating, but roughly around 15 to 20 bucks. Gotcha. So mortgage insurance really only comes into play when your down payment is under like 20%, right? 20%, correct. Okay, got it. So if I have like a 750 credit score, I still have the same price, interest pricing and like points to get the loan. It doesn't matter. So I basically 740 is a magic number, right? Correct. 740 is a magic number. But there's another thing where if you go into jumbo loan amounts, so any loan amount over 726, 525, that's when it does matter if your score is over 740. Okay, can you explain that? So that's when it goes all the way. So so just for jumbo loans, that 740 is not the magic number. The magic number is as high, whatever highest score you can have. Oh, got it. I mean, you know, like in the Bay Area, like, you're not even going to get a home. All jumbo loans. All jumbo loans. So I guess if you're talking about Bay Area specifically, not so much Southern California, um, 800 credit score is the magic number for there. Jeez. (laughs) Uh, so like, what is a differential though? Like you're saying every 10 points, there is a difference. Uh, like quantify that. It's like, a- um, it's hard, it's, it's hard to quantify it because, um, you're probably talking about, it's, it's hard to quantify because each bank I work with quantifies it differently. Okay. But if I were to, I would say the pricing would be different. So just for example, if someone had a seven, 40 credit score, conventional loan, 20% down, quoting like a 4.375 per se. The cost for that 4.375, I'm just making up numbers, is $500 out of a 740 credit score, okay? Okay. If you were to, if I were to quote it again with a 739 credit score, mm-hmm. then it might cost $800 for the same interest rate. Okay, got it. So that's that's how pricing works. I mean, yeah, it's something, but three hundred bucks, like that's not. A but big but deal. then actually, it will, it will be more than eight hundred dollars, but it'll be more than a three hundred dollar difference. But I then, see. but then, um, it's pretty significant when, especially when most people are trying to buy their home and they're trying to save as much money as possible, and and it's a lot of money if you were to think about down payment and closing costs and all the fees attached to it. So um, it's a big purchase and it's a big investment. Usually most people just purchase one home for themselves in their lifetime. That's and right. Kind of live there for a long time and um, kind of live that way. But it just kind of depends really on the individual. Okay. So that's interesting. I never even realized that they could just change the, like basically origination fees based on your credit score, but keep the same interest correct. rate. Correct. Correct. Okay, cool. All right. Usually how I do it is I always um, quote closest to par, meaning um, no lender credit and no discount points. So whatever the interest rate is right at par is what I quote. Um, always give the option to pay discount points to see if it's worth it to pay down the mortgage um, interest rate to a certain amount. Um, it's only worth it if you plan on really staying in the property and keeping this loan for a certain period of time. Right. So it, I always give that option to my clients. Um, they can also go with a higher interest rate. And if they're kind of short on cash, they don't have, they only have down payment, but no, not enough for closing costs. Right. We can always in, increase the interest rate to give a lender credit to cover those closing costs as well. I or do a portion that. Of it at least. I do that for yeah. my out-of-state well, properties if because it's, if it's short term, if it's short term, then um, it's better to do it that way. If sure. it's short term, if you plan on keeping a thirty-year fixed for like maybe a couple of years only, then it's better to get your closing costs covered. And in most cases, but there are situations where it's not. Also, for closing costs, seller can cover closing costs as well. So it all kind of comes down to when you lock in the rate during the thirty-day escrow. Um, if it makes sense, how much seller credit can you really get? So it's a timing thing as well to see how what really makes sense for them. Gotcha, gotcha. Mm-hmm. So uh, you said that you work for a broker now, right? You're not a direct lender. Maybe can not you? Not a direct lender anymore. Yeah, can you explain you know what a broker does and like why people go with brokers instead of just going directly to a bank? So I guess I'm a little biased now since I left the direct lender and uh, joined a mortgage broker. Yep. Um, one thing about the mortgage broker side is that 
this is just my opinion, but I have a lot of control over the loan rather than not rather than having to go with only one type of pricing, one type of appraisal management company, one type of you know underwriting and all that sort. Um, when you're a mortgage broker, you have access to a lot of different banks that your company is approved with. And each bank I have a different um, client for. So for example, I have a bank where I will put all my FHA clients through because their FHA pricing destroys other FHA pricing at different banks. Mm -hmm. um, also, for conventional, I, I would I have for sure this one bank that I would use for conventional because their pricing, they just decreased all their pricing for actually like a couple of weeks ago, beating all the big banks, beating all the other wholesale mortgage companies that we are we're approved with. Um, the pricing is the best right now. Very so, nice. So it just kind of depends on what kind of client and what kind of loan works for them. I have another bank for non-QM loans, non-QM meaning non-qualifying mortgage. Um, these loans are for individuals who are usually 1099 income, um, write off all their income on their tax returns to save money, but they're showing zero income on paper. Mm -hmm. So they can't qualify for a conventional loan because they're not showing any income. They're not showing any net income on their taxes. Right. So, they have no W-2 or they have a bunch of paper losses, correct, even though they're actually correct. making a lot of money. Exactly. Okay, exactly. But, but for I have a bank for those non-QM loans where you can do a bank statement loan for where we would look at your bank statements for 12 months, look at the um, average deposits in that bank account, and then that would be that would be the income that we would use for the loan. Um, interest rate for non-QM loans are higher than conventional, but obviously because it's usually funded by a private investor or a private bank where they'll allow to do these kinds of loans um, with with their own underwriters and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Uh, higher risk, higher return. Correct, correct. So usually, a lot of people usually any kind of non-QM loan goes into usually goes into the jumbo loan amounts. Right. And so yeah, it's cool. Cases. Like as a broker, you can find solutions that cater everyone's different needs and help them move correct. better. Correct. Cool. What kind of issues do you usually see for people getting their loans? Issues. Uh, you can talk about all kinds of issues, to be honest, but the biggest issue would be just to be very vague, I guess you could say, would be the clients not telling me everything that I need to know. For example, let's say one of my clients had a short sale within the past three, three years. Mm. And we went moved forward. Usually I kind of audit them a little bit to make sure I don't miss anything. But sometimes there are people, clients who just don't tell the truth or they're just ashamed of what happened or they try to hide it. Sometimes it doesn't even show up on their credit report, but then it shows up later when they do they just kind of go over their like accounts and everything. So it just that would be the I guess the biggest issue, but usually it's kind of uncommon that that happens now. Um, there's even loan products out there where you can get a loan, obviously for a higher interest rate, but you can have a, most you can have a bankruptcy yesterday, and you can get a, a conventional loan. Yeah, what so kind of uh, let's let's talk about that one. How how what are the rates on that? <laughs> That's like hard true. money. Probably look at her. No, it's not hard money. You can do a hard money loan, but obviously you're paying interest only on hard money, but. If you're trying to do a 30 year fix, you're probably looking right, right around like eight to nine percent. So hard, it's basically hard money. <laughs> comparable hard money interest rate, but Jeez. but 30 year fixed on that interest rate. Right? Okay. So I guess Fair if enough. you uh, made it big the day one after of our banks, one of our banks do do have offer that product, but I've I tend to stay away from those. <laughs> I'm sure your clients do too, right? That sounds scary. Yeah. Because see, if you're doing hard money, you're paying nine percent, at least it's IO. It's not like plus principal too. Exactly. Exactly. So 
it's it, just to begin with, it's hard for them to even qualify for that monthly payment because it's so high. Yeah. So that's why, that's why it just kind of, uh, it doesn't make sense in most cases. And, and I, I, I would, I would run the numbers, numbers for them, but usually the numbers are too high. So, you know, another thing that a lot of my friends are doing now is they're buying like a lot of properties, whether it be out of state or whether it yep. be here in the Bay Area. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, they're making a lot of money. They're engineers and whatnot. The mm-hmm. biggest challenge they have is DTI. Can yep. you talk about maybe some creative financing or some ways that people can increase their DTI so they can buy more properties? So DTI, debt to income ratio, qualifying for, like I said, FHA is 57. Let's just say 57. Conventional is 50%. Jumbo is 43%. That's unfortunate because everything here is jumbo. <laughs> exactly. But jumbo, you have to, if you're going to qualify for that loan amount, they're expecting you to have massive income. So to kind of fit that debt to income ratio box for each loan, the best way would be to minimize your debt, meaning um, monthly liabilities. So whatever comes up on your credit check when you when we do a mortgage credit pool, um, it's going to list out all of your liabilities that you have current and all, and then it's going to give us what you're paying monthly on each liability. So if you have a credit card with a $25 a month payment, then you're looking, that's the $25 a month liability going towards your debt to income ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a car for about $350 monthly payment, that's going to be added onto debt to income ratio as well. So in an, in an ideal situation, you want to pay off all your debt before you buy a house, but that's kind of uncommon because usually car payments last a very long time. 10 plus years. Um, so what you want to do is at least minimize the credit card debt. Um, if you can pay off all the cards before doing the loan, but you can also pay off the cards while doing the loan. Just show them that you're, you paid it off and they'll run a credit supplement on that account. And that will show that it has a zero balance on the credit card. Um, another thing is student loans. Um, student loans is kind of another issue sometimes. Um, a lot of people make the mistake of deferring their student loans, but sometimes they get confer- they get confused with deferring and not paying their yeah. student loans. So it gets it, it turns into a whole thing where like, oh, they think that it automatically becomes deferred if they stop paying it or whatever. But people have to just understand that any kind of student loans is a federal debt. It's a government debt. Um, it will always be on your credit report no matter what until you pay it off. Um, it will hurt your credit score a lot if you stop making payments. You have to just make sure that you call the student loan company and make sure if you're going to defer it, do you even have that option to defer it a couple more months or put it on pause or whatever. Um, I'm not a student loan expert myself, but at least on the mortgage side of things, a lot of people do make the mistake of not paying their student loans and they just rack up late payments on their credit report and end up killing their credit score, increasing the interest rate, increases the per- increase the monthly payment, they don't qualify Yikes. for too much. So student loans is really important. Um, and say that it is, it is naturally, what if you just got out of college, you have a divert student loan account and... Um, you deferred for like six months, 12 months or so, and you, you don't have to make a payment and you're not getting dinged on not making a payment because you don't have to just yet. Um, but for a mortgage, we still count a monthly payment against it. And usually it's 1%, but they actually just lowered it to half a percent per month. So if you have a $100,000 um, loan amount and your monthly payment would be like 500 bucks. Mm-hmm. On on that hundred thousand, and that would be that would go directly towards your debt to income ratio, mm-hmm. and that's just a guideline that even though you're not making payments right now, you will that will be count that much will be counted against you on your debt to income ratio. So for um, most of my investor friends, I don't think they have those kind of problems. What they have is like yeah. the income problem, you know, like oh, the income they have problems. well got because it, they it. have they have like you know multiple properties, so most of their debt is in paying off houses. 
and you know they kind of break even cash flow, right? So but, from what I'm hearing is you, you, a lot of your investor friends have they have too many properties. They want more, they but DTI properties. is stopping them from getting more. So that's kind of the beauty of owning a property is that you have a bunch of write-offs. You can write off practically almost anything as long as you can show that you're repairing the property or you went to Home Depot to buy this item or whatever, you can write all of, all of that stuff off. It's Mortgages is like a double-edged sword where you write something off that will decrease the income on, on, that's your, right. on that property. That's so, right. <laughs> so... The only way to really, the only way to really offset that is to lessen the write-offs. Um, but most people don't want to do that because they're trying to, you know, not pay as much taxes. But if you know that in the future that you are going to purchase a property, get ready for it because there, whenever you're, you buy a house, you're going to be audited on two years of your work history, two years of your residence. Um, it's pretty much two years of everything. And if you and say that you make 50,000 in one year, 1099 income, and then you make 100,000 the next year, and that's two years right there, they're gonna average out your income to 75,000, 75,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So, and that's with after tax write-offs. Um, there are also restrictions on owner-occupied, non-owner-occupied investment, um, second home as well best interest rate would be to buy an owner occupied property um, usually people have that on their first chance of purchasing um, if they don't have any other properties before um, another way to utilize that owner occupied interest rate is you're able to use it pretty much every 12 months because mortgage on when you sign your mortgage um, contract and all the paperwork is going to specifically state that you have to move into the property within 60 days and then occupy that property for 12 months minimum. Mm. And then after that, they don't really require you to live in the property. Um, so you can live in another property every 12 months. Okay. Yeah. And the only, and the only way that you can keep on doing that, if it, if it makes sense with your work. So, Say that you're a W-2, you work at Facebook, you get paid W-2, and your Facebook office is located here. You can't buy an owner-occupied in Southern California when you work in Northern California unless you can show the underwriters that you're actually working in Southern California to okay. utilize that utilize that owner-occupied interest rate. Can I, so, can I do owner-occupied? Like, I move from up here to San Jose, from San Jose to Cupertino, from Cupertino back to San Jose within that's one year? Okay. That's fine. Yeah. As long as it's pretty close by and it's driving distance from your work. Then it makes it sense. Just, then it makes sense. Okay. Okay, cool. So let's go back to increasing income. So I heard that rent counts towards your income, but not all of the rent. 75%. 75% of collected or market? Collected gross income. Okay. For the past two years. So collected, collected income. Mm -hmm. Collected. Oh, no, no. It wouldn't be past two years for... An income property, it would be what you're collecting right now, and then you can so extrapolate average, times twelve. What do you mean times twelve? You mean divided by twelve? Uh, well, we'll say like I'm collecting or, yeah, this yeah, month, so, so and then you, imagine you, so I collect yeah. this all year long, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so it's gonna go whatever month that you're getting now, and then all you gotta do is show a lease agreement, um, showing that you're making this much, and then the norm is seventy five percent of what you collect. And then 25% is considered maintenance on the property. Okay. I mean, that includes like your property management fees and blah, Correct. blah, blah. Utilities. So gross all then, right? 75% of gross, gross collected. Correct. Okay. Correct. What if you're like buying a new property and it's like a fourplex? Like you said, you're going to live in one and you can rent the other three. Do you say, yes. hey, even though it's vacant, I'm saying, hey, these three, I'm going to rent it at, you know, market rate at a certain amount. Does mm -hmm. that work? Yep. That works. As long as you're not purchasing a property that has rent control. Um, rent controlled properties. So the one I bought is a fourplex and I bought it owner occupied. One of the units was delivered vacant. Um, and the seller was living in that fourth unit and there are three tenants in the property already. For rent control, 
prop rent controlled properties, I have to keep those tenants there and I can't kick them out and collect whatever rent they're paying. So And then the rent they're paying is considered uh, you know, you multiply that by twelve correct. or seventy five percent, sorry, and then that's like your yeah. gross rent. Correct. But if but let's say I'm in you know a non number rent controlled place like let's say Santa Clara. Well, okay, so so let me kind of clarify something. Okay. Um, you're not. It's not going to be. It's going to be based off of. It kind of depends. It can kind of go both ways on whether taking the average income of two years or whether they're looking at the current um, lease. But in most cases, they're going to look at the current income. Yeah. They're not necessarily multiplying it by 12. That's going to just, they're going to be like, okay, this is how much you're collecting every month. Take 75% of that. That's it. That's your income. That's ideally what you want it, how you want them to look at it. Sure. Um, if you, there's any kind of weird numbers that pop up where, where you still had the same amount of tenants, but you, so for some reason now you're collecting way more rents this year than last year they would question that and they would be like, I'm unsure about this. Therefore I'm going to use to your average rather than what you're collecting now. Okay. So it all comes down to the underwriter, a different human being looking at your file and what they determined is the best way to qualify you for the loan. Good. So speaking of underwriters, can you explain how the whole process works? Like, you know, yeah. who are the different um, people who touch a loan and how does it get finally approved? So a lot of people why does it take thirty days or so to get a loan done? Yeah. So basically, on the so right when you open escrow, um, but before that, you get pre-approved. Um, you talk to a loan officer like myself, and they'll pre-approve you and show that they'll collect all these documents: pay stubs, driver's license, W twos, tax returns, business tax returns. If you're self-employed, um, once they take a look at everything, once I take a look at everything. I will be able to see how much income I can use and be able to calculate how much of a monthly payment you can qualify for using that debt to income ratio, depending on what kind of loan it is. And once I, once the loan looks really good to me, um, that's when I can say I pre-approve you. And when someone says I pre-approve you, you're pretty much banking on that person telling you that you're pre-approved, not the underwriter. So, Sometimes loan officers do a bad job and they pre-approve someone and they find out it doesn't go through. That's when loan officers lose business because what they pre-approved is not correct. Um, but for me, I kind of, you know how people have cleaning disorders? I have that with loans where- the OCD. I, if, yeah, like I don't, I don't, I can't, I check every single thing. Cool. Like, Past bankruptcy. Like so if you're you if you get pre-approved by you, then we should be good to go. You're 100. percent All right. 100. <laughs> um, but there are other because I when I used to work at um, Loan Depot, and they had a system called condition getting conditionally approved, meaning that you submit a file without a property address to have the underwriter look at the entire file before. Mm -hmm. So they're doing the initial underwrite before we go into escrow. Um, they advertised that, and I did a couple of those, but what I found out when I was working there, which was disappointing, was that they just looked at the file. They didn't really go into detail on what the conditions are gonna be for the file, meaning they pretty much kind of looked at it briefly and put it to the side, saying that's a conditionally approved by the underwriter. When it, the time came to actually get into escrow, they they made an adjustment on the income when they should have made this adjustment at the time for the conditional approval. So that's yeah. why it's it was very disappointing because we had to figure out a different way to do the loan, which increased pricing for my client, and therefore. It costed them more money when it should have been taken care of at the beginning, even before we went into escrow, meaning that the underwriters at this company did not do a good job and told me they were conditionally approved when they weren't. Mm -hmm. So in that case, 
I don't know if you want to blame me, the loan officer, but in my mind, I'm blaming the underwriter, right? So, so it just kind of comes down to what kind of company is over underwriting your file. How much experience does that loan officer have with, with putting loans through that bank with their underwriters and using their system on who touches the loan and all that and what qualifies and what doesn't qualify for this bank. So just to be clear, so, the underwriter is basically the final say who says, yes, we're going to let this loan go through. Correct. Okay. And uh, let's go over the whole path. So that, first, okay, let's go. first they yeah. say, hey, I love this house. I put an offer into it. Good. Gets accepted. And before that, they, okay. even, they talk to you first. They say, oh, I need a loan. How much can I buy? You Let come me in. lay it out for you. Sure, yeah. go ahead. Let me lay it out for you. You lay it out. For me, this is how I do it. Um, I pre-approve them. When I pre-approve them, they're good for the loan. Pre-approval and pre-qualification when, are different? If you want to get technical like that, pre-qual means it's a verbal approval, meaning they haven't checked. Um, it's like, oh, it sounds good. It sounds is, good. But then the thing is, this is my technical definition of it, but other people have probably different opinions. But okay. To me, a pre-qualification is I get on the phone with the customer. They they tell me what their income is. They tell me how much they made in the past two years, and they tell me their credit score. Just off of that phone conversation, that's how that would be considered pre-qualification to me. And I would say, oh, you're pre-qualified. Um, I could write you a letter, but I'm not. I wouldn't write a letter saying that you're pre-qualified, I would actually make the effort to collect all your documents, make sure what you're telling me is true, run credit, make sure that credit score is exactly what we need, and fully approve you before you put in the offer. Um, you never want to get a pre-qual, quote-unquote, pre-qual, before you to submit an offer onto a house. You want to get fully pre-approved every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, some people take pre-qual as the same meaning as pre-approval, but to me, I, I kind of differentiate the term, um, saying pre-approval is what it really is the true verbiage for being, being approved for a loan. Sure. Pretty much. Okay. Okay. Step-by-step process is pre-approval first. When escrow opens, that's when the buyer has to put in the earnest money deposit, maximum 3% of the purchase price. It can be lower than that, but the earnest money deposit is pretty much the money you put in to the escrow account and until, which kind of shows the seller that you guys are putting, getting your feet wet. You guys are putting money into this. You guys are serious buyers. Um, Wait, hold on. What do you mean by maximum 3%? Unless, unless, <laughs> I don't know, for me at least. I definitely put more than 3% before. Really? For yeah. earnest money deposit? Yeah. For, oh, for, you got to show them you're serious. Boom. You, you throw guess, down. Yeah, I guess I guess maximum. Maximum would be my me, down payment. At least, like, <laughs> At least for me, 3%. It's not a earnest money deposit, at least in LA County, Orange County for me, is not a big <laughs> deal as long as you put something in there. Sure. But it has to be at least like over a thousand bucks. 10 G's, oh, 10 Gs. 10 Gs. Okay. At least. Sure. But 3% of the purchase price. Your purchase price for average purchase price in Orange County, probably looking around like 700000 or so. Okay. Right, for okay. a single family. Um, three percent of that is twenty-one thousand. So that's a big chunk of money. Okay. So yeah, yeah. Whatever. There's also lower price range in Riverside County. Three hundred thousand dollar homes. Three percent is only nine thousand. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so it just comes down to what the purchase price is. Um, I've only seen three percent maximum on all my transactions here. Mm-hmm. Um, Northern California probably done like a couple, not too many, but even then it was three percent. So yeah, I would say for maybe. most people, they only put 3%. That's like standard. Yeah. If you're doing investing and you want to buy quick, sometimes you got to exactly. throw it down. Yeah. Exactly. Well, if you're doing investing, um, I guess if you're doing investing, yeah, you want to put in a higher earnest money deposit. And you, those those terms are always negotiated. And exactly. You know, talk about it. When you say maximum, I thought there was like a rule for that. And I was like, wait, what? Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. But what I've seen maximum was 3%. That's gotcha. what I'm saying. All right. So go ahead. Continue. And then... And then once you put in when they once they put in their earnest money deposit, that's when um, we put the file that I packaged together with the loan, meaning all the supporting documents, um, the driver's license, tax returns, ID, all of that stuff. I put it together in a file and then upload the application, and that's when 
when you upload it to the bank, that's when it's submitted to the bank. And that's when, once it's submitted, the underwriters start look, looking at the entire file and that's called initial underwriting. Once initial underwriting term time can be from same day to 24 hours, but no more than that. Um, once you get a once you get a response from underwriting, you're going to get a conditional approval, like I mentioned before. That conditional approval is an underwritten approval saying that the client is approved for the loan. These are the conditions that we have to meet before we close. Mm -hmm. Those conditions are usually, if it's a condo, HOA certification, um, making sure the, the, the buyer has searched, uh, searched for homeowner's insurance. Um, getting all the documents, like a declaration of trades for homeowners insurance, making sure they have all that stuff. It's all usually should be easy stuff for the conditional um, conditions. Um, once we take care of those conditions, you go into final underwriting. And that's when the underwriters look at it one more time. Has the conditions been met? Has there been any changes from this day to that day in their credit scores or have they has have they made any big purchases? They check everything. That's right. That's why you don't get a new credit card when you're in escrow. Exactly. Yeah. You don't buy any cars or you don't buy any cars. You don't do anything or don't finance any furniture before you buy the house because a lot of people do that. Oh, okay. Because um, they run your credit, you know. Because you know people get excited and they want to buy something, um, but you don't want to do that until you really close sure. the loan first. Um, and then once they go into final underwriting, same term time, it could be same day or. Um, 24 hours, but once you get the final approval on the underwriting, then that's when you're clear to close. Once you're clear to close, then they just got to do the wet signatures for the final documents and record, uh, fund a loan and record, and that's it. When does the appraisal usually, come into play, and then what do they use? Oh, appraisal, appraisal happens pretty much the same time when you start the loan. Gotcha. Um, right when you submit the loan, because um, usually there's an appraisal contingency and you want to meet the appraisal, finish the appraisal within a certain period of time. Um, usually you want to do it quickly. So you, I, I usually order it right away. And then is there the something saying that, oh, we won't loan a product that's, you know, like appraisal is only worth this much. I don't want to loan this much or how's that work? So if the appraisal comes in higher, um, so keep in mind, the only people who see the appraisal report is the buyer and the lender. So I get to see it and the customer, my customer who paid for it, which is right around like 500 bucks or less yeah. for an appraisal, depending on the property as well. Um, only we get to see the appraised value of the house. Um, so meaning that the listing side don't, doesn't get to see anything, but all they're worried about really is if the price comes in at value so that they don't have to negotiate price. But so if it came in like 50,000 over, I have actually did one that I closed this month. It came in 90,000 over Good. the purchase price. And my buyer was stoked and sure. she was super happy. One bedroom, one bath. What? Like nice. Condo in, in uh, Culver City. Okay. But then, um, but then she was super happy. Like by that point, she did not really care about like, she did care, but she did. She was just not as worried about getting seller credit, things that- Yeah, because she thinks she has 90 grand in equity, Exactly, like so she, 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 already, she already does because she just bought it, so she's super happy. But let's go the other way, and if they were to, if the appraisal were to come in lower than what it, the purchase price is, then yeah. that's, when, that's when it becomes a little complicated, and the listing side has to kind of adjust with the buyer saying, um, say it came in like 10,000 under a couple options is first off the bank will only lend up to the appraised value of the house and they'll base it totally on the appraisal that's done on the house. So if it's 450 purchase price, it comes in at four, 440, they're only going to lend up to a 440 purchase price, meaning that there's a $10,000 gap. The buyer asks if they want to move forward and the listing side is not budging on purchase price then the buyer has to come in with an extra $10,000 to make up the difference. Wait, so can you say that one more time? Is it like 20, they only loan 80% of 440 if it comes in at so 440? It depends, it depends on what they qualify for, loan amount wise, right? But let's just say they qualified for 
450. They, they, they do qualify for 450. Okay, right? sure. But they're not going to just assume that right when you buy this house, you're going to gain 10,000 equity. So that's why the bank will only lend up to how much the property is worth. So what I'm saying is, like, you're not going to get a loan amount for 440, though, right? Usually you only get 20 or 80%. Of four forty. So so you put twenty percent down. Yeah. Right. That means let's do it one million dollars. It's easier. One million dollars. Sure. Okay. So you put twenty percent down, um, two hundred thousand down. Yeah. And you, so the loan loan amount exactly the loans eight hundred grand. It appraises for. Let's say nine hundred. Nine nine hundred. Okay, nine hundred. Yeah. And that means they'll only loan up to nine hundred thousand, with the twenty percent down. Oh okay. So it so it decreases your down payment. So basically, your purchase price can't be more than the appraisal price, unless you put down more down payment. Let's just say it again. So if I have a property that I sign a contract for for one million dollars, and mm -hmm. it only appraised at nine hundred thousand. Yeah. Originally, I was going to put two hundred down, and get mm -hmm. an eight hundred grand loan, but now yeah. it's only worth nine hundred appraisal. Mm -hmm. So does that mean my loan has changed? From two hundred down to eight hundred loan. So what you qualify, to... what, you, what you qualify for the loan doesn't doesn't really change on the loan amount. You still qualify for that loan amount. It's just that the pricing changes. Right. So now you you only have you only have two hundred thousand to to put down on the house. It comes in at nine hundred. Now your required um, down payment is twenty is one hundred eighty thousand now. Sure. Right. It's one hundred eighty thousand, so but now you just have to come with another extra hundred thousand to cover the difference. So you, yeah, so you have extra twenty thousand there, so you need another eighty thousand. You need another eighty thousand to cover the difference for the loan because they're going to only appraise loan up to whatever the appraised value of the house is. Got it, got it, got it, got it. If you want, if you put down, put in that extra money, then you're putting. If you make put in that extra eighty thousand or the hundred thousand, you're putting more than twenty percent down. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so they'll still loan you that amount, but they're they're not gonna just assume that you you're gonna make this much equity within this much time. They're gonna only do it based off the present value of the house. Gotcha. Does I mean, so absolutely. My dad has this problem sometimes. He works mostly with yeah. like buyers, and yeah, sometimes mm -hmm. it doesn't and come. NorCal. It doesn't NorCal. come because here's the thing: the properties appreciate faster than appraisals work sometimes you yeah. know what i'm saying like month to month it could be very different pricing and they're like right. nope you're under and then they're like all right we're going to find another bank then <laughs> yeah exactly so how uh, fast have you seen loans turn around because i know sometimes it's like 30 days but sometimes oh last minute i need one they get done in one week i've, I've gotten a, yeah i've gotten it depends on the buyer and how clean the file is but i've done a clear i've gotten a clear close in like five days okay so it's from, possible from so it's possible just enough so. fire under the butt <laughs> Exactly, exactly. But usually there's a way to do it. You can even order the appraisal before we go into escrow as well. If it's like 100%, if, if the buyer's agent knows that it's going to be accepted 100%, like even a week before, sure. then, then we can order it. But who, who usually does that though, right? Who does that? No. But, but appraisal and if the, usually the things, the determining factors for that is the appraisal, getting the appraisal done the homeowner's insurance, making sure that we can get, we can convert a homeowner's insurance quote into a declarations page, into an actual policy. And then um, if there's any other conditions that we have to kind of fill for the underwriters, then once we do that, it's clear to close. Nice. It's pretty simple. Nice. So that's why it's a good loan officer, I guess I'm calling myself good, is um, to audit the buyer as much as you can to make sure that we're not going to get any negative feedback from the underwriters to make sure that we close the loan rather than falling out of escrow and wasting everyone's time. That's right. You know? And how many so, loans have you closed so far in your career so far? Uh, I don't, I don't haven't kept track, but I would say like probably like around 30. Nice. Yeah. Right around there. It's from start 2016 of August. Yeah, it took me honestly like six months though to get my first one in. Yeah, I'm sure so, it takes a lot of hustling to start. So it to took start. like it took like six months to even start my first one. Learned a lot from it, but when I moved over to this company in April, um, kind of went way better. So I guess the past twelve months have been better for me than the first twelve months. 
So nice. it's kind of much getting better um, in the end for, I think, real estate agent or loan officer. It's a relationship business. That's and right. Like once to, they know you, they're just going to keep giving correct, you more business. Correct. To create, create relationships with, for me, the realtor, for real estate agents, for the client buying the house or selling the house. Um, also for me, it's been more than just realtors. It's also been like other things like chamber of commerce for my, my community in Brea. Um, oh, you've joined. I'm also, yeah, I'm part of the cha chamber of commerce. Oh, my cool. company is part of the chamber of commerce. We're also, I'm also part of a Latip group, which is kind of similar to BNI where it's like one category per, um, industry and one person per industry and they meet on a weekly basis and kind of refer uh, business to each other. Oh, that's cool. So yeah, how do you plan on growing your business uh, um, this year and even next year? Growing my business for me, it's for me to grow my business. There's multiple ways I can meet more people or or um, network more or you know always ask for referrals. But for me, I want to actually try to help the current agents I'm working with to grow their business whether it be um, helping them at an open house or helping them fund some partial fund for postcards with both of our information on it or like any, even like door knocking or even anything like that. I'm kind of like down to hustle with them. Have you done door knocking yet? Have, I've done door knocking for nice. plenty of time. Nice. Yeah. Um, but it all comes down to if they're down to okay. kind of go, go with me. Yeah. Um, but in the end, I'm trying to help them with their business plan, but, but by me helping them with theirs helps mine. So um, if I can help my agents grow their business, then I'm sure that they will refer the clients back to me and I'll, we'll kind of be able to grow together. That's right. And that's kind of my goal this year is to focus more on the agents I'm working with right now to grow their business mm -hmm. because I've made a lot of, because real estate agents, there's a ton out there. There's people who do it part time. There's people who just do it for their just own transaction. There's people who right do here. it full time. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> and, but then look at you now. It kind of turned. I don't. I don't. I mean, I'm not. I'm still not an agent. I mean, not yet, at least. But really? I, I have the license. I just don't use it. Yeah, yeah you just stuff. don't use it. But but you totally can though. I know? could and, sure. And um, but you know, people get their license for no, any reason, but. Yeah. The agents that I've been kind of developing relationships for the past two years, I guess say, you could say that I've been in the business. Um, I want to there. I can see kind of like the fire that they're kind of burning doing this full time. Mm -hmm. And in order for me to team up with them and take a burden on with them to help them grow their business, I think that would make a huge influence on them and even motivate them more to not quit the business. Cause don't get me wrong. I've, worked with a lot of other agents before and I put a lot of time and money into meeting them and building a relationship with them, but they end up leaving the business because they can't even get their first one in. Mm, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. It's hard. So there's a lot of that. And it's one of those self self made businesses where everyone here is getting paid full commission and not, and it really make your own money kind of thing. You're not getting paid any salary unless you work, work for Redfin. Um, but so it's really self-motivating and you just have to keep on going even no matter how hard it is. And don't get me wrong. I've been through the same thing as a loan officer. Like I didn't even know what I was getting myself into. And <laughs> I just kept on grinding because for me, I moved from Northern California to Southern California. Yeah. yeah, I did know some people. We went, we both went to UCLA. I, I do know some people down here, but I, I like I kind of got disconnected for like two years because I went back home to kind of work over there for a little bit and then I came back down here kind of only like knowing my close college friends and that's it and when I moved back down here it's kind of a brand new start and I didn't have like a sphere of influence I didn't have um, people that I already knew in my network and I kind of had to build that from scratch yep and that's kind of what I did um, I built it. I joined the British Chamber of Commerce. I cold visited open houses, just introducing myself uh, that I'm a loan officer. 
Nice. Um, They're like, I've done that. get out of here. I grinded. <laughs> I grinded. Exactly. I grinded. I did. I used to visit like 20 open houses in one weekend. Wow. Nice. Like every, every weekend for like months straight at the very beginning. Because um, in the end, like now I know the real estate agent's perspective and what they're looking for from a loan officer. So um, just by being knowing that and learning that, it really changes the whole game and kind of changes how I sell myself to other people and be able to offer something better than others. Awesome. So, yeah, that's a kind of long story short. (laughs) So how can people get in contact with you? Uh, They can contact with me through my cell phone, 650-200-9598. That's my cell phone. If I don't pick up, that means I really can't pick up. Um, I can get contacted on after hours and weekends. So I'm always, always working. And you service all of California? Do you service other states as well? No, not other states. Um, not licensed for that. Um, I don't feel the need to, but just California, anyone in California. Cool. NorCal, we'll SoCal, all good. NorCal, SoCal, all good. Very good. Yep. All right, John, is there anything else you'd like to say before we end the podcast today? Um, no, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. If uh, Do you have any other questions? Well, I don't think about loans or anything. We kind of didn't go over every single type of loan, but kind of gave you that gave you the gist. So things pretty good, you know, especially yeah. like where you gave us little tips about, yeah. you know, stuff. Yeah. I think oh. that's probably more interesting. You know, like it's about skirting the legal barrier, you know, but, but wade in the gray zone. Yeah. And also again, yeah. this is not like, oh, I said it, therefore it's true. It's, I said it, you get an idea. Now Correct. it's up to you if you want to do it or not. But here, here's an idea. Correct. Here's how people Correct. are doing it. That's probably a better way. Oh, I have clients that are doing this, this, and this. You don't have to say who, right? But Exactly. Yeah, and then maybe we could so, go on but, that in, a, in another episode. A lot of my uh, friends are investors, and that's what they want to know. Like, yes, yeah. it's great to hear just the basics. And I think a lot of my friends who don't know, like they're trying to buy the first home. This podcast mm-hmm. is perfect for them because they don't know anything about nothing. Yeah. But then the next one, if we do it again, it'll be more about, all right, you're an investor. You want to get loans? Here's how we can make it happen. And it's not like, and, and also well, it's like, let, if you want to make it happen, hey, let me know. Exactly. <laughs> well, no, let, me, let me know what exactly you want to talk about because I feel like your mindset is more towards the investor side. Well, for me, it's kind of like my, my clients kind of thing. So let me know exactly what you want to talk about and I'll kind of pre- prepare for it and then kind of like, give you some good tips, I guess. Absolutely. And here's the thing of, too. I, I yeah. don't even know them. I don't even know what to ask sometimes yeah. because I've never yeah. seen it. But since you're doing this, like on a daily basis. Uh, if you happen to see some kind of creative financing, I would call it creative financing, yeah. you can make a note of it and be like, oh, here's what this guy did. Like for example, There's... a lot of people are buying fourplexes, just like you said, and they're using FHA loans because uh, the loan amount is so crazy yeah. compared yeah. to how much you have to have. And then yep. for DTI, you can use the rents that you're going to get for this property. You know what I mean? So like Correct. most people have no idea. Mm-hmm. Even investors, they have no so, idea. Yeah, so that's, it just comes down to kind of asking and I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who knows like, you know, the small tips and tricks, but that's right. But it's just kind of, and also it's a learning process too. A lot of the loans actually surprisingly this year, I've learned some new ones Sure. and it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty damn crazy. Some, some questionable and crazy loans, ones. Those are the best ones. Loans, <laughs> how these loans even went through to begin with. Um, and, and it also comes down to, which banks, at least for me, which banks can do them or not. Yeah. Um, there are some banks who will overlook those underwriting guidelines. And, you know, like, for example, if whoever, whichever bank holds the mortgage note when they originate the loan, right, they can choose which bank, when to sell the loan. Because usually whenever a bank does a loan, they sell the loan to That's make right. more money. That's right. Uh, quick money. Um, but if they, for example, if they know that this one person is able, is going to get a raise, I'm just being kind of exact, sarcastic or being over-exaggerating a bit, but let's just say they know that they're going to get a $50,000 raise in the next month or so. And, and the underwriter for, they're like, all right, if I can see a guarantee that you're going to get this raise, right? Like in a month, but you need to buy this house right now but we need this extra income for you to qualify. We will fund the loan for you. We'll hold the mortgage note for a month. Show us paperwork that you got the raise. Then we'll sell the loan. Well, that's those kinds of things, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. so it also depends on who you are connected with 
And if you're able to, if that bank is willing to go hold the mortgage note, because if you hold the mortgage note, that means you can break all the underwriting guidelines. You can't. Yeah, because you're all loan. But then when yeah, you sell it, you, someone's buying it and they have expected like and criteria. It, it, has to, it has to fit the fit that box. That's right. The underwriting box. So it depends on what kind of connections you have and and if they're willing to go that far for that client. Yeah, so, I think next you know, time if, and that's, if we that's talk, a big one. you can talk about you know how where does the interest number come from in the first place? Like how why is today four? Yeah. Why was yesterday three? You can also yeah. talk about why do banks sell loans because. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, I I know it happens, but I totally don't remember why. But yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you too, Sean. Thanks a lot for okay. coming on the podcast, and I'll see you around next time. Thanks, Sean. See you, man. Bye. Bye. Here's some of the things that I learned from talking to John today. FHA has its pros and cons. You get to have a fifty percent DTI, but you have to pay an extra one point seven five percent fee, and you have to pay PMI for the rest of the loan instead of conventional loans where you only have about. 43% DTI, but you don't have that extra 1.75% fee. And PMI usually goes away once you have 20% of equity in the property. I also learned from John how the loan pricing structure works. So if your credit's good, basically they might have the same rate, but they'll cost less in origination fees. I also learned about different types of loans, such as bank statement loans. And I learned that there are ways to get loans. You just have to find good ways to traverse the gray zone. I think I'll have John on another podcast in the future where we can go more into these kind of strategies of creative financing. I hope you all enjoyed the show. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.